0: Welcome to Politics Done Right from the studios of KPFT 90.1 FM, Houston, your community radio station. We have a great program for you today. Yes, you know who is with us today. The one and only Tom Hartman. We're going to be discussing the history of Big Brother in America. It's going to be a good show. But anyhow, we all know all the turmoil that's occurring in this country right now. And I tell you what. I want everybody to just sit back, watch how we handle Ukraine. Watch how easy it is for us to say, we need to send equipment over there. We need to spend the money over there. It's the right thing to do, but I don't want us to ever forget that the right thing to do here in America is to rebuild the middle-class and to uplift the poor into the middle class and if we can find the money and be so ready to invest in Ukraine and in any time, any war that we see fit to, we should consider the plight of 60 to 80% of Americans as a war as well and act accordingly. You know what time it is? Time to get busy. You know, I was watching Morning Joe this morning, and there is a piece that really got to me because it was like the tipping point. As far as Republican senators and neoliberal senators wanting to give Ukraine everything that they ask for. After all, it is existential that they get these this type of support to ensure that they can mature, they continue to mature into that fruitful republic, into that republic, maintaining its democracy, etc. And you know what? I agree. Ukraine is not pure. Ukraine suffer from the same ills that we suffer from in America in a lot of ways. I mean, uh, when, when it comes to those students who were try- students from Nigeria and all the places trying to get out, they saw that this country that wanted America to help out with its democracy to keep it away from that intruding, invading army, they still couldn't get past their own prejudice. So they're not pure, but yes. We want no invading country to come into another and take, take it out. But when you watch how America has put itself in a position to help unabashedly, completely, without doubt, you have to ask yourself certain questions. I just want you to listen to this exchange because you know it's like we have to do this. We must do this. Check this out and then we'll take it on the other side.
1: I'm not asking you, obviously, to do the White House's bidding here. You would never do that. But do you at least understand the stakes are so momentous when we're talking about whether we get it right or get it wrong could end up uh, in a nuclear war? Of course. And and that's why I've said I'm not in favor of declaring a no-fly zone, uh, because you don't get to declare a no-fly zone. You have to enforce one. And that would mean putting American pilots in the air and getting into a direct shooting war with Russia. Russia, I'm not advocating that, but I am saying that you can't let Putin say because he has a nuclear weapon every other thing he does can cause us to self-deter. There are 44 million Ukrainians, something like 6 or 7% of the population has already fled. If Putin moves forward with targeting civilian populations for months or years if the resistance could last that long, are we saying that at every point he can escalate to this, he can escalate to death camps, he can escalate to that? And we'll just constantly say, well, because Putin has nuclear weapons, at no point can we do more. We can do more. The Ukrainians have demonstrated a will to fight. This is a population of freedom fighters on display, their courage on display for the whole world to see. And if it shoots, if they'll shoot it, we should ship it because they're willing to fight. We don't need to do the fighting, but we should be doing the constant resupply. It should, the, the burden of proof should be on us about why we wouldn't supply every single weapon that they request.
0: Think about this. Just think about this, this constant resupply. Whatever they ask for, we should give them. Whatever they need, we should provide. Suppose we thought about doing these same things for the poor, the middle class who is struggling, those who need child care. Suppose we realize the importance of getting students relief from their student loans so that they can execute their better beings in society. Suppose we just thought about these issues. Suppose we thought about just what's necessary. You know, we are always willing to give them guns, to give people guns to kill. We are always willing to provide to others. Why can't we provide for what's going to be best for a country. Think about this, folks. If we change all those words of war in that sentence from Senator Sass and we include it in that or we put in that helping the middle class, solving the problem of childcare, solving the problem of student loans, solving the problems of family leave, and all these other issues, solving the problems of the environment, because they are all existential. Why don't we think that way? Why are we programmed not to think that way? Why are we programmed to forget so easily about our humanity and so often about just the fight? A few days ago, uh, Alex Vinman went on to Lawrence O'Donnell and he tried to explain to Lawrence O'Donnell that we need to do so much in Ukraine We must go in there, and he wasn't necessarily saying go in there with guns, but give them the planes, give them everything that they want, you know. And there are two, two pieces of that interview that I found that I liked. One is that Lawrence O'Donnell reminded him that there are a lot of countries that we completely disregard, where people are suffering like hell, and we've done nothing. And also, we really don't want to sit down there and fight a war with Russia. Let's listen to it and then we'll take it on the other side.
2: Let's listen to what uh, Admiral Kirby, the uh, Pentagon spokesperson, said today uh, about this question of sending jets uh, to uh, Ukraine for their use. Let's listen to this. We assess
3: that adding aircraft to the Ukrainian inventory is not likely to significantly change the effectiveness of the Ukrainian Air Force relative to Russian capabilities. Therefore, we believe that the gain from transferring those MiG-29s is low. And finally... The intelligence community has assessed that the transfer of MiG-29s to Ukraine may be mistaken as escalatory and could result in significant Russian reaction that might increase the prospects of a military escalation with
2: NATO. So some are making the point that uh, the Ukrainian pilots are not flying now uh, with the aircraft that they already have. And so jets don't don't appear to be what they need at this point.
4: That's not true. Uh, Frankly, I, I disagree with that assessment. I think we have to understand that one of the reasons that the Ukrainians aren't flying is because they don't have that many planes and they can't afford to lose them. They have to save some of that air power for when uh, when there's a crisis situation, let's say, around Kiev. Those those jets would be meaningful, uh, as well as other uh, kinds of support that we can provide with regards to unmanned aerial vehicles, intermediate range uh, air defense. What I fear when I hear those kinds of statements And that kind of smoke and mirrors uh, analysis, uh, because I think, in fact, that's cherry picking some of the uh, I know that there are divergent views within the intelligence community. uh, And plenty of people think that this would not be escalatory and within the bounds of how the U.S. has conducted proxy warfare, how the Soviet Union and Russia have conducted proxy warfare. If this was any other country that wasn't uh, doing a little bit of saber rattling, that wasn't somehow indicating that we we're headed towards a nuclear war, we ought to have taken action a long time ago. Uh-huh. Uh,
2: Colonel, uh, we're running out of time. Uh, a couple of points there. Uh, first of all, uh, there are many, many, many countries in the world where we've never considered one minute of intervention. Uh, we saw uh, suffering in the Ethiopian uh, civil war within the last year that wasn't even televised, wasn't even brought to American audiences. And so what we are seeing here is the most that the United States has ever done. Uh, in supporting a country being invaded by another country short of war. And uh, the other point about it is when when you said it doesn't seem escalatory to you, it also doesn't seem escalatory to Admiral Kirby. He made that clear. The point is, would it be seen, the jets, would they be seen as escalatory by Vladimir Putin. And so what they are doing is trying to deal with an anticipation of Vladimir Putin. Yeah.
4: We we can't I mean we 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 should absolutely not be dismissive of nuclear saber rattling and the, the risks of escalation. What we can do is we can make risk informed decisions, well thought out, well considered decisions on the and the consequences of those decisions informed by what we understand and what we have High confidence on with regards to Russian action. Uh, uh, Colonel,
2: this is not a proxy war by Russia. This is a a war by Russia against another country. This is not proxy. This is not them using another country's battlefield and supporting another country. That's proxy when you're supporting another country. This is direct. And there is no previous model that fits Afghanistan. this particular conflict. We did not confront the Russians in Afghanistan. We are doing in Ukraine what we did in Afghanistan. The Russians confronted Afghanistan. We did not dare confront the Russians in Afghanistan.
4: That's what that's, we're saying the same thing, frankly, because okay. what we're talking about is providing the Ukrainians with the material they need to fight it. I'm not, I've, I've never advocated for U.S. forces on the ground or in the air
0: everybody can actually once he he, he pretty much insinuating that that is something that we should do so i mean he's not being completely frank there but uh, but but the idea is he wants a lot more involvement than we would want to provide than we that than we should provide to put it bluntly because again uh you know Ukraine ain't no saint now what Russia is doing is criminal but Ukraine's as a country, it's not like they are pure, you know? So let's be clear there. Let's be, let's be very, very pragmatic. Come- Jen uh was asked a question about the, the bill, the, COVID re- the, the extra COVID relief bill to extend it and do more things, right? And as it turns out, it's being blocked, right? It's being blocked by most of the Republicans, right? So uh, here's a question and watch how she answers it. I think the way she answers it is important, but I think it needed a bit more depth. Check this out.
5: Going back to COVID funding, yeah. um, obviously, this is something um, that White House officials stressed today. This is something that President yeah.
3: addressed in his State of the Union address. Um, but if this is so important for the President and the White House, will he meet with Republicans in- individually? Uh, will he make his case to them personally?
5: I would note that there's a number of Republicans who won't even return our phone calls about the impact of the lack of COVID funding and how they will impact their constituents. So that's probably the best place to start. Go ahead. Yeah, how are you going to get it through Congress? Uh, you have Republicans in the Senate who are making it very clear, leadership, saying that there is no Republican support for moving any more money for COVID.
4: Sign up to The Economist for in-depth, curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology.
5: relief because they believe and they believe the white house hasn't made a strong enough case that funds can't just be moved around to uh, fund these priorities. Sure. Well, we've been making that case publicly and privately back to earlier this year. So that those are the facts. Um, we've also been, as I just noted, attempting to engage with and have these conversations with, of course, Democrats, but also Republicans. COVID doesn't discriminate just by party, um, at all. Um, I think what we're trying to do is, uh, really be very, clear and direct about what the impacts will be. I mean, some of these programs, funding for uh, for um, treatments for immunocompromised, providing free tests and masks, providing free uh, boosters and vaccines, uh, those will impact millions of Americans potentially in this country, regardless of their partisan affiliation. So what we're doing, we're going to, of course, leave the process and the vehicle up to Congress. Uh, we we are encouraging them and aggressively calling for them to move these resources immediately. And what we've tried to do is break down what the impacts are going to be on different states and also when specific programs will end so that it doesn't feel like just a number, but feels like a direct impact on programs and people's lives. In terms of whether money can be moved around, I know you've said before that it can't be moved around. Uh, What we're hearing from the Hill is that they believe there's about a $100 million that could be shifted. Um, and, And certainly there was an agreement with the four leaders to shift funds that fell apart in part because governors fault. But um, is there money that could be moved? Do these dire consequences have to start next week or could funds be shifted and then later allocated? Well, the opposition, as you know, it prevented that from ha- being a portion of what moved forward. Right. I don't know that that opposition has changed um, at this point in time. Um, but also, it's important to note that um, we believe that this should be provided on an emergency basis, um, not something where they're requ- require offsets. It shouldn't have to require taking money from states who are using it for um, different programs, whether it's funding cops or police officers or other programs. That was a part of the discussion and the negotiation, but not aware of any change in the uh, appro- support for that.
0: The inhumanity of anyone who opposes this bill to, en- to, to enhance COVID support. And le- let's get it further. Do you think if this, if it were on the other shoe, that it was Democrats holding up something that saves people's lives, that they wouldn't have gone much harder at it? I love Jen Saki, but this one I don't think she's handling right. I think Jen Psaki immediately should come out and say Republicans had no problem. Voting for military equipment for Ukraine, they had no problem spending a dollar with the defense industrial complex. But when it comes to saving their fellow human beings in their states, they couldn't. They wanted offsets. Nobody asked for offsets for Ukraine. Nobody asked for assets whenever we're going to war. Nobody asked for assets when we're buying bombs, when we're buying these types of things. Why ask for offsets when we're trying to buy things to save people's lives? That is the the direction of the argument that needs to be taken. We need to come out and say, The party of death is at it again! They will buy weapons of destruction, of killing, without batting an eye. But ask for weapons to heal, ask for weapons to improve someone's humanity, ask for weapons to make one's lives better. And their answer is... Crickets! No. You know, if anybody from from President Obama's team or any of the media that to some seem like they weren't an attacker of the president would have been slaughtered, they would have been slaughtered if they had attempted what Tucker Carlson as well as uh, Fox News and others have done. Check this out. And then we'll get it on the other side.
3: The brazen indefensibility of Vladimir Putin's war of aggression in Ukraine means that Russia's propaganda machine has its work cut out for it. First, Putin tried to justify his war by claiming he was liberating Ukraine from Nazi rule that fell flat. So now Russia's trying a new strategy, new false claims that U.S.-funded laboratories in Ukraine are building biological weapons to use against Russia, a kind of retread of the WMD argument from 20 years ago. Now, to be absolutely clear, it's a lie. There's zero actual evidence those labs are building weapons. It doesn't matter. The conspiracy nevertheless gaining steam on fringe far-right websites here in the U.S. In fact, as NBC reports, one cybersecurity expert has found, quote, the rhetoric on pro-Trump sites, which had largely been anti- putin in the first days of the war has shifted because of the biolab conspiracy theory a theory that has been actively entertained on fox news by tucker carlson what exactly are they doing in these secret ukrainian biolabs ukraine is the poorest country in europe it's hardly a hotbed of biomedical research we're assuming these weren't pharmaceutical labs probably not developing new leukemia drugs from your answer, Tory Newland, we would assume, because you all but said it, that there's a military application to this research. They are working on bioweapons. Again, it's not a particularly clever method. They're like constant rhetorical questions. So you're never actually making a claim. It's very obvious. But that's the whole point, right? Tucker Carlson and Fox News CEO Suzanne Scott both know that Ukrainian labs are not making biological weapons. But it must be working for whatever agenda they have. As media critic Aaron Rupar notes, Tucker's rarely come out as nakedly pro-Putin. Instead, he's sort of anti-anti-Putin, all framed as opposition to the forces in the U.S., mainly the Democratic Party, which opposed Putin's war. By extension, Tucker works to legitimize a lot of the Kremlin's favored talking points. And that's not really an exaggeration, just to be clear. I mean, you know. Uh, people can say whatever they want, free country. But this is what's happening. It's what he's doing. The Kremlin itself sees Tucker as a useful asset. According to a leaked document translated by Mother Jones, a memo for Russian intelligence services to Russian media explaining why they need to play more of Carlson's show, quote, is essentially as much as possible fragments of broadcasts of the popular Fox News host Tucker Carlson, who sharply criticizes the action of the United States and NATO, their negative role in unleashing the conflict in Ukraine and the defiantly provocative behavior from the leadership of the Western countries in NATO towards the Russian Federation and towards President Putin personally. Now, again, maybe you don't know the prominence of that. That uh, memo and you're skeptical of that but let me tell you it's it's on russian state-owned television all the time as people who watch it have been noting but he's into those state-owned news outlets in russia are being told exactly what pro-war propaganda to use on air there are incredibly brave protesters trying to get the truth out even on state tv amazing
0: just think about it suppose anybody's related or supported by president Obama had ever done that become the sycophant of Putin become the the resident, what, what would they like to call the resident of, of Putin, you know, that's promoting the lies that Putin is putting out there. Suppose that were the case. We would have a riot in this country. I don't understand how Trump gets away with it. And I don't understand how Trump has people that stick with him as he generates this, this type of stuff. I don't understand how Tucker becomes the highest rated cable news, uh, cable opinion, news, uh, personality. I don't get it. But remember, these guys should be considered by you traitors. Hey, guys, as you guys know, we have been alive for 52 years. And you know what? Venetia Williams, one of our board members, came out with a hell of an idea. And I want her to kind of Pump it up for us. But all of you guys that are listening to us right now, fun drive is over, but we still need you guys. Hey, Venetia, tell us what you think. We not what you think. Tell us what we as members of Pacifica, as members of KPFT need to do right now.
6: Well, right now, you know, we celebrating our 52nd birthday and because we didn't do anything last year because of covid everybody's been asking, what we going to do? What we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do, do? So I came up with 52 on 52, which means $52 for 52 years. It's a fundraiser I've done with countless other nonprofit organizations. And so the premise of it is that you just donate, 50, simple Simon, you donate $52 for 52 years. That's all you got to do. And it's our birthday celebration, and that's what it's for.
0: Look. Let me tell you, Pacifica is, or rather, KPFT is a hell of a radio station. We serve Houston. We're here to serve, and that's what we do. do. And, you know, if you just go to our website and go to, wait, how do they donate anyway? You tell me.
6: Okay, they donate by going to kpft.org and the, um, the fund drive. This episode is
5: brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer.
6: Phone number. You know, I don't know that phone number by heart, but it's 713-526-5738. There Come on, Danisha. <laughs> okay, you know I never memorized they need to get a simpler phone number five two six six thousand or something.
0: <laughs> I, but
6: I can't remember but, but anyway, you just go to those two you either go to the website or you go to the phone number and just follow the just follow the prompts well, and it, then you know how they ask you for what show you want it to be for just say fifty two on fifty two well, it'll you know, come you know up what? it's
0: it'll, so funny. I, I did it even simpler because, you know, I I went on the website and that they had that thing that said PayPal. And since you guys gonna key
6: on. Oh, 52, yeah. PayPal. I oh, just yeah.
0: Click on PayPal. And I did the fifty two bucks because 52, you I embarrassed right. me in the board meeting because it was like, you mean you haven't done your fifty two dollars yet? And I'm like, oh, I
6: did not do that. Hey, I did not do. That.
0: Might as well. You had. <laughs> <laughs> Because of
6: no, it. I said that all board members need to donate and they do, because when you what's his name is working himself crazy trying to find grants. And the first thing I'm serious, a lot of people, if you're not into grant writing, you don't understand it. But if they're going to shell out big money, the first thing they're going to ask you is what is your board? One hundred percent is your board? One hundred percent and that's the first question they're gonna ask so 52 to me 52 okay and let's say okay you it's hard times or whatever you can stretch i you know i don't like to promote this but you can you can not stretch the 52 out for I, a but year. you know
0: what Venetia, i follow your lead and the truth of the matter is you've been working in this business for a long time in making sure that people get, get good programming and making people sure that these nonprofit radio stations can stay alive, especially in these times when we need it. I just want to thank you because oh. everybody knows, everybody knows this 52 on 52 campaign is yours. It has a ring to it. And for all of you that are listening to Politics Done Right right now, this is 52 Look. Venetia is one of our, our trusted members. And I tell you what, oh,
6: that's so if, sweet.
0: if she says 52 on 52, let's do 52 on 52. So call right now, 713-526-5738, 52 on 52. We'll tell them that you want to give that 52 bucks. And I tell you what, the easy way, go to kpft.org and click the donate button or click the PayPal button, whichever or one.
6: Click PayPal. And-
0: yeah, and choose $52 and, and keep this station alive. We're still working very hard to get that new building, that new equipment. And oh everything. yeah, we're
6: getting a new building, y'all. And we I got some ideas for that too, but I just did not say that out loud because I all the parties haven't gotten together yet. But yeah,
0: you know, um, we, we 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 you know, let, let's stick to 52 and 52 until mm-hmm. you get all of that, that stuff hammered out, Venetia. And then we're going to get it done. So, folks, again, we want to thank, I I want to thank very kindly Venetia for appearing on Politics Done Right to promote this 52 on 52. Because I tell you what, KPFT needs good people out there working their butts off for, for this station. And Venetia is one of our trusted members that's out there busting her butt for this station. Venetia Williams, thank you so kindly for coming Aww, on. To thank you, invite Town. You
6: know I love you. You're
0: one of my favorite people. Well, you know, you know, it's like ditto, ditto. Yeah, you're one of my favorite people. We got it, girl. Thank you very much. All right, so no, here. thank you and thank you,
6: everybody. Huh? Fifty-two on
0: fifty-two.
6: There you go, fifty-two on fifty-two.
0: Thank you, folks. Once again, with us, Tom Hartman a four-time winner of the Project Censored Award, a New York Times bestselling author of 33 books and America's number one progressive talk show host. His show is syndicated and on local for-profit and non-profit stations and broadcast nationwide and worldwide. It also is simulcast on television into nearly 60, 60 million U.S. and Canadian homes. Senor Tom... Hartman, how are you doing today, my friend? My buddy, Egberto. It's great to be back with you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, look, man, I tell you, you have another one out. And you know what I told you? Every time you release one of those guys, I want to be on that list. But this, this one, I was kind of, I, let me tell you, I had to just scan the thing. But I am intrigued by several of your chapters. New book is The Hidden History of Big Brother in America. What got you into writing that, Tom? Well, I've been fascinated with the, you know, with the
7: topic and we're certainly seeing, you know, (laughs) creeping big brotherism here, Uh, you know, not just creeping. I mean, you know, the Patriot Act kind of blew it through a wall and uh, and as did the Telecommunications Act of 96, the Section 230. Um, And uh, it's you know, it's altered the world. I mean, you know, this is the, the corporate Big Brothers and, and, and in some ways the government Big Brothers too. So I wanted to, to uh, do a deep dive into both, which we did. Well, I mean, game.
0: and you sure did. I You know, I was going through the table of contents and I'm like, wait, I would have never thought about covering this in Big Brother or covering that in Big Brother. I mean, it was quite an enlightening, uh, enlightening thing. So let, let me hear, uh, is this the last in the series or is the series... Continue, the the, the the hidden history of series.
7: The next one I was doing the line edit on um, just before I called into your show. And it's going to be titled The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, How Reaganism wow. United America and How to Restore Our Greatness. As much as I kind of cringe at greatness, I don't get to pick the titles the publishers do. Um, but uh, it's that's what it's about. And it'll be out in September.
0: And then that's probably going to be the last one in the series, but we'll see. Well, you know, that, that one is going to be exciting. Anytime I hear the word neoliberal, you know how we feel about that and you know, yeah. the, the kind of things that we have to do about that. Anyway, uh, so, so tell me, um, how, what got you into uh, this? I mean, you're, the beginning, you start Big Brother and the Puritans. Why did we start there?
7: Well, I mean, there have been two times in American history, I mean, people think of Big Brother, they think of 1984, George right, Orwell, exactly. you know, in which, you know, government is Big Brother and Big Brother's watching you and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And there have been two periods in American history where we actually had Big Brother governments. I mean, you know, like George Orwell style Big Brother governments. Um, the first, well, not the first, but one of them, the first one I t- treat in the book is the, the, the plight of people who were not uh, uh, Puritans in uh, Massachusetts and Southern New Hampshire back from the 1600s, right, right up till the constitutional era. In fact, for this reason, Massachusetts almost didn't join the, the Republic.
0: Yeah. yeah.
7: And, uh, there, you know, they had laws requiring that you had to go to church. You had to pay taxes to the local church. You had to treat the, the church elder as if he was, uh, you know, the the senior official in the community. Uh, with great deference and all that sort of thing. And there were these three Quaker women who just weren't having it, and they refused to go to church, and they weren't paying their taxes. And so uh, the head, this was in Dover, New Hampshire, and John Greenleaf Whittier uh, made it famous with a, a, a poem titled uh, When the when the Women Came from Dover, uh, which I quote in the book. And um, uh, the this pastor, his name was um, Hate Evil Nutter. <laughs> <laughs> his name, his his first name was hate evil, all one word, and his second name was nutter and uh, which I suppose is enough to make you crazy, but anyway yeah, the Nutter uh, part yeah he, he felt that he was being disrespected by these women because they weren't showing up in his church, so he ordered the town constable to tie them to the back of a horse cart in the middle of winter. It was there was three feet of snow on the ground, strip them naked to the waist whip them until they were bloody, and then drag them in the back of this cart to the next town where the process would be repeated. And this went on through three or four towns. I forget uh, how many. Uh, it's in the book. And finally, a constable stopped. And, and uh, you know, it was a fairly well-known story that, like I said, Whittier turned into a, one of our You know, one of the more famous poems in American literary history. So that was the first. Um, The second, uh, of course, was slavery. If a person was black in this country from 1619, you know, arguably up to quite recently, um, Big Brother was watching. Big Brother was controlling. And uh, certainly during the slavery era, up until the end of the Civil War, um, the South was a complete police state. You cannot, and you and I have talked about this before yeah. when my an oligarchy came out, you cannot enforce slavery without a police state. They are It's absolute an absolute necessity. But by 1840, as a result of the invention of the cotton gin and its high price, so only big plantations could buy one, and it made a plantation 50 times more productive mm-hmm. in terms of cleaning cotton. Um, because of that, by the 1840s, the South had become uh, an oligarchy, just a fascist state. Um, elections were meaningless. Ballot boxes were stuffed. The people who could run for election were only members of the roughly thousand oligarchic families in the South who owned basically the South. Um, everybody represent you know, elected to any kind of political office of any consequence was from one of these families. If you uh, if you were white and you defied these families, you could get hanged. You could get whipped. You could get imprisoned. Uh, you could get driven out of the states. Uh, and so. Really, the Civil War was not a war between the North and South. It was the war between a fascist Mm. oligarchy in the South that had that no longer had any loyalty to democracy whatsoever against a Republican democracy in the North, at least to the extent that it was with men voting and not women. Um, And and by and large, not black people voting also. But still, it was that those those were the two systems. And so that was
0: our second Big Brother era. And then, you know, the before thir- you go to the next one, because there is something that that kind of puzzled me when I was going through scanning through the book. Right. And the chapter that came out to me was Big Brother invents whiteness to keep power. And it is something that before reading your book, I would talk about on my on my station, particularly telling people hate we this was designed to for for some to keep power not it wasn't designed for white people it was designed for some to hold power and when i saw that you brought that into the fold it was like oh wow yeah tom why don't you elaborate on that for me well thank you
7: i can't uh, claim original uh, originality to that i learned it from the 1619 project and several ah. other- Books that were written around that time, but basically what was happening is, you know, starting in 1619, slavery uh, was a thing here in North America, and uh, by the middle uh, by the by the middle of the early 1600s, the 1630s, if I'm remembering correctly, and I would refer you to Hannah uh, Mm -hmm. uh, Nicole Hannah Jones's book, yeah, Nicole Hannah Jones, yeah. Um, But uh, around that time, uh, poor whites. First of all, many of the Africans who were brought over were just one generation of slavery or or, you know, it was impressment or it was um, uh, I forget the word for where you have to pay back your fare Indentured servitude, indentured servitude. Thank you. Bless you. And um, that was the case with many of the white people who came to this country as well. And so they were finding common purpose with each other. And there were a number of rebellions that were black and white rebellions against Mm -hmm. rich people. And so the, the good fathers of Virginia specifically in the 16, 30s, as I recall. In fact, I think 1636 was the big year for it. But I'd have to. It's been a year since I wrote the book. I'd have to go back mm-hmm. and look at it. Um, but but uh, you know, basically, they said, "Okay, we're going to enforce this caste system, but we're we're going to do it the lazy way. We're going to make it so that you know anybody you can just instantly look at them and know which caste they are right. in America. And uh, thus, they literally invented whiteness. I mean, slavery had existed forever in history. The Romans had. Slaves. The Greeks had slaves, mm-hmm. but their slaves looked just like them. Right. I mean, occasionally, they take slaves from nearby people that they had conquered. So maybe the slaves spoke a different language or looked slightly different from them. But by and large, by and large, you know, slavery was not a racial thing. Um, but uh, we invented that. Uh, we uh, America invented that. The Virginia invented whiteness, and it still it still haunts us. And and now it's spread
0: around the world like the the poison that it is. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, when we move on now from the the social aspect and we hit the corporate aspect of Big Brother, I think if you follow your your lead, that is probably one of the most corrosive and dangerous portions of this. I think so, because
7: in particular or, you know, what what amplifies it is the Supreme Court saying that corporations are persons and that persons can buy politicians, and that
0: it's all just free speech, uh, political bribery. I stop no you right there because I, I want to tell you, I met you during the move to amend days and the coffee party days. I remember you were one of the huge advocates that came out there and spoke to us about people, personhood and all of that. So I want to give you a, 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 a late thanks on that because that was an important thing then. Well, thank you, Egberto. Yeah, I wrote a book about it called Unequal Protection in
7: 2002. Uh, The subtitle was How Corporations Became Persons. And um, so, you know, it's it's particularly problematic when corporations not only have the ability to own politicians, write their own legislation, but excuse me, but can also um, but basically know everything about you. Um, We really don't know if any corporations have done what j edgar hoover did i mean i mentioned in the book um that hoover in fact very early in the book that hoover was you know a gay man at the political pinnacle of power mm-hmm. and in a at a time in the united states in the 30s 40s 50s 60s when just simply being gay was enough to get you imprisoned or or murdered and um but he and and but he used Political spying, big brother, government spying to g- compile dossiers on virtually every politician and, and business leader who might ever challenge him. And, uh, you know, right up until 1960, in fact, because he was being blackmailed by Santo Traficati down in Miami, he had, he and Clyde Tolson used to go down to Hialeah and gamble and, and, and uh, Trafficati would give them, uh, money and young boys and access to the, to the racetrack and things, um, and give them rooms in the hotel. Um, uh, Traficati was blackmailing him. and, And so he was denying that there was even such a thing as organized crime right up until 1960. That year, there were only, I think, 17 prosecutions for organized crime in the United States. Then Bobby and John Kennedy came in. And Bobby in 61, the first year, had over 700 prosecutions of organized crime, which is when Traficanti and Marcello found their backs to the wall and decided that they were going to do something about the Kennedys.
0: But that's kind of a whole nother book <laughs> that I wrote a number of other years I ago. Am, that, I am going to be interested in, in, in that Offshoot the Kennedys and the mob, but yeah, yeah go ahead. That, that book is called "Legacy of Secrecy" that I, I co-wrote yeah. with uh, Lamar Waldron, um, and it's
7: about you know the both Kennedy assassinations and the Martin Luther King assassination. But um, I forgot where we were. Uh, no, 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 not that we we're talking about the corporations and and t- oh yeah, t- yeah. And and so you know I don't know if any corporations have compiled dossiers on particular members of Congress and said uh, <clears throat> if you uh, <laughs> don't say something uh, this might get out, um, but you know we we live in a time when it's a very real possibility. Um, I, I actually don't even present that as a
0: possibility in the book. I'm I'm just speculating with you right now. But I you but, know I don't Tom I don't see how it's not. You know, again, we are we are just talking about speculation that you wouldn't be able to put that in a book. I understand that. But it's not hard to believe how these guys come up with certain laws that they know the average American citizen simply don't want unless that's the case. Yeah. I've, I've assumed up until this up until recently that, you know, when
7: uh, legislators are passing laws that they know most people don't want and that they know are going to be harmful to America and Americans, that they're doing it because they've been bought. Because yeah, been paid off. but it's not inconceivable that they're being blackmailed as well. I just, I just think that that's less likely. I that's the kind of thing that. Well, I was going to say that's the kind of thing that would probably get out, but you know, Hoover's blackmail of everybody didn't get out until after he died.
0: Exactly. So yeah. exactly, <laughs> no, exactly. So you never, you never know about that. So when it comes to, you also link capitalism in there. Um, I personally th- think that. Capitalism needs all these types of coercions and absent these coercions, you can't have a system as we have it at the same as where it really is abusive to people. And at the same time, people tolerate it. And therefore coercion is necessary. Your thoughts on that relative to uh, what you've written. By coercion, what do you mean? Well, you cannot have people believe you cannot have people work themselves off for the profit of others and not complain about it, you cannot have people who simply say um, come out to the defense of let's say the the pseudo, the real capitalists as they do if they're not coerced into the thought process that have them doing that, and I think in a lot of ways, knowing our internals probably presents that case yeah,
7: well, you make a you make a good a good argument for it i, I mean again I, I think that it's it's not so much that you know, if, if a group of people want to unionize that, uh, Amazon is spying on their, uh, on their That's purchasing industry and they're going to, and they're going to use it against uh, them. I think it's more that Amazon will simply hire, you know, union busters to come in and scare the hell out of them. Um, you know, uh, I, I think that the big club here right now is money, not, not, uh, you know, Im- implied or even direct coercion.
0: Oh, so you don't, you, so you think it's mostly, but let me ask you this and let's, let's push, let's push that a little further. Sure. It's, it's money. Okay. How does the money get one to do what they need to do? Well, money is a form of coercion. I mean, okay. you know, if you don't have enough to eat,
7: you know, money is food. If you don't have a place to stay, money is shelter. If you don't have, uh, you know, the, the clothing you need to protect yourself right. from elements when winter comes, you know, money is survival. And uh, in, in addition to all the things that we generally think of it as, you know, as status and as leisure and as, you know, whatever. And uh, so uh, I, I think that you can build a strong case. And frankly, this is the case that was built back in the 1930s to to come up up with the National Labor Relations Act, the Wagner Act in 1935 to legalize unions. You could build a strong case that um, the the power that an employer has over a non-unionized employee um, is extraordinary, particularly during a time of widespread poverty, um, which was very much the 1930s and increasingly America today, um, sadly. So yeah, I I think we could we could frame it entirely in a coercion frame.
0: You know, it, it is amazing that um because I've, I did a piece two days ago with Larry Summers and Larry Summers appeared on TV and I'm going to tie this into your book, but Larry Summers came came on and he 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 explained to the well he thought he was explaining to what I call a naive audience that after you've gotten four percent uh or so in wage increases that. It automatically generates inflation that actually takes back more than the than your increased income was. And then he starts crap. I know. And then (laughs) he starts to bring up and he says, and by the way, you know, you know, Ukraine creates a lot of wheat. So therefore, there's going to be a lot of transportation. You know, we are we can overproduce more oil if we wanted to, which means from U.S. ports, we'll have ships going from U.S. ports with this oil to deliver whatever. So he, he intermingled in there and we're gonna to have to start thinking about having ships not follow the Jones Act and go and, and simply have the, go to the cheapest shipper so he attacked inflation wage inflation as justified wages as being a, as being the causation of inflation the reduction Indian. of you know he he in one package right and I'm like talking about subliminal messaging to tell the workers don't ask for too much you know it was yeah. just amazing and I, when I tie that into what we're talking about, Big Brother, it is like Big Brother telling you all these things that will occur in, yeah. in, in this scenario. Yeah, Larry Summers is a neoliberal's neoliberal. It's going good uh, for your next book. Yeah, <laughs> that's a little too late to write him into it. But if he's not in it, then I'll have to go. <laughs> he probably, I, I bet he's in it because he was there with Obama. And when oh, he yeah. came up, you know, so I bet he's in there. But second thing, globalism and Big Brother. Tell me yeah. about it with respect to the book. Well, uh, the info wars.
7: Right. Uh, you know, uh, g- 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 I, you know, it's a tough one. I mean, globalism is like, you know, one category and Big Brother is kind of another what's happening with regard to a global response to Big Brother. I can I can directly address, which right, is right. That's what I mean. I, actually, I'm going from your part three. Okay, okay, so um, the the European Union has come up with a, a set of basic rules, basic you know rights for people who are uh, users of the internet. And you, you're seeing the the consequence of this when you visit websites and they say, "Well, you accept cookies." Um, the, the, uh, the requirement is that you have to be, uh, you have to disclose things mm-hmm. that people are being tracked and things like that. And there are limits on the ways and technologies that can be used to track people. There's also a really cool thing called the right to be forgotten that the European union has now recognized, which came out of a lawsuit from a Spaniard who, um, was very upset that his name, uh, he had been involved in a bankruptcy back in the late 90s. And whenever anybody Googled his name because he was a low profile guy, that was the only thing that showed up and he wanted it to take it off the search engines. And so uh, they're they're pretty vigorous about it. Plus, here in the United States, um, we're the only developed country in the world that allows the internet your internet service provider, the company that's bringing the internet into your home, to observe absolutely everything they're doing online. They can watch every keystroke, read every email, look at every website you visit, even know how how quickly or slowly you scroll down the page, stopping Mm -hmm. at particular pictures or headlines or ads. They know all this stuff and they can record it and they can sell it. And uh, so there's that. And then the uh, which, you know, that's the result of Donald Trump having hired Verizon lawyer Ajit Pai as the as the head of the FCC and blowing up what we referred to as net Mm -hmm. neutrality. I always thought it should have been referred to as net privacy because it was really about Title II, the Telecommunications Act, which has been used since the 1930s to say that if you want to wiretap somebody, if you want to listen on the phone conversation, you have to have a warrant signed by a judge. And up until. Donald Trump and Ajit Pai got a hold of the FCC. That was the law with regard to the Internet in the United States, too. And it still is everywhere else in the world. So, you know, we've got a serious privacy problem. The other big problem um, that has gone worldwide, but really started here in the United States, is that, uh, well, let me let me give you a a setup for this. Um, Starting around the year 1000, (laughs) around the time of the Magna Carta, 1100. Computers then. Yeah, uh, no, no computers then. Um there was this notion it was it's sometimes referred to as the castle doctrine that a uh, you know a man's castle yeah. home is his castle but the the flip side of that is that you know if it's your castle you're responsible for what happens in it. Mm -hmm. So if you, Egberto, were to go out and put a a sign out in front of your house, uh, you know, Saturday afternoon that says big party Saturday night, 10 p.m., you know, everybody welcome and you leave the door open and and just every reprobate in in the community comes in. (laughs) So, you know, just anybody who's looking for, you know, some. Someplace they can get away with some kind of skeezy activity that nobody else would allow. So you're sitting there in your house and it's midnight and this has been going on for a while. And there's somebody in the back room getting raped and there's somebody over here showing child porn against the TV wall and a couple of people in the corner shooting up heroin. And the police walk in. Who goes to jail? Well, all those criminals and you because right. it's in your house. You're right. responsible for it. And if you allow criminal activity in your home and you don't stop it or report it, you go to jail, too. So and like I said, that has literally been in British common law for a thousand years. Yeah. And it was an American law all that time. Well, in 1996, in the Telecommunications Act of 1996, Section 230, uh, the geniuses who wrote this thought, hey, let's. Carve an exception into this. We'll leave it intact that, you know, if, if Tom has a party in his house and terrible things happen, he can be held accountable. But if he builds a house on the internet, even if he's selling, even if he's inviting in, as long as he's not doing it, as long as he invites in other people who are selling child porn or who are selling drugs or who are selling or who are terrorists and organizing bombings and attacks on January 6th and stuff like that, as long as it's his house. But he's not doing it. He has no responsibility at all. Mm-hmm. And thus, you know, within a couple of years, Mark Zuckerberg became one of the richest guys in the world. That 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 is a shame um, without giving, <laughs> We need to do something about it. And by the way, you know, who wrote a pretty good book about this is Josh Hawley. I mean, you know, you've got Republicans as well as Democrats who are pretty flipped out about Section 230.
0: Well, you know, weren't they trying to change that? It wasn't Congress having hearings trying to change that law? Yeah, they still are.
7: And, yeah. and, you know, at the time that Hawley wrote his book, it was when Trump was still president. and And the whole sales pitch was, you know, Facebook just took down Donald Trump. We need to regulate these big companies. But, you know, in his book, he raises a whole I mean, the second half of the book is just, you know, it's it's about how liberals are going to destroy America. But the first half of the book is a pretty good documentation Mm -hmm. of uh, how Section 230 has just wreaked
0: havoc on our country. Well, I mean, it sure has both with the election, you name it, you got it Um, without giving the the end of your in the end of your book. um, How do we rein this in just kind of topically, not anything in detail?
7: Well, I think that, you know, number one, we need to deal with Section 230 and get that under control. Number two, we need to break up some of these giant monopolies. Um, No, no one company should control 80 or 90 percent of an industry like Google does with search, for example, or Facebook does with social media. Um, Number three, we need to adopt the the European privacy laws, um, the GDP. I think it's the GDP. Yeah, yeah whatever it is, <laughs> we need to we need to adopt that or something like it. And California is kind of leading on that, but they can't do things that that the federal government could do. And 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 finally, we need to end uh, the so-called net neutrality and or we need to restore net neutrality End uh, Ajit Pai and Donald Trump's sabotage of the Telecommunications Act and the Title Two of the Telecommunications Act of 1930, whatever it was.
0: It's funny as a starting
7: point plus we Several need to, wait years to, as to as to how they're being
0: spied on <laughs> <laughs> and you know i, I you know I, i'm i'm still you know even though europe has better laws i still sit down here and wonder sometimes but do they really work because it's a pipe i don't know i i i think you need great laws in the front end and the back end um, i agree you know, lot, i actually wrote an article on on the uh, net neutrality for common dreams about i don't know years ago And it just popped up recently. And I'm like, oh, I forgot about that You're, you know, several years ago during our move to amend days. Oh, yeah. You were at the front of a lot of this stuff. Yeah, we were we were with this stuff a long, long time. Um, Tom, first of all, folks, you guys have to go out there and get that book. And, you know, I don't I you know, I get a lot of people on here and I don't just tell them to go get the book. But this is one. Well, every book that Tom writes, you got to get out there and get. So don't forget to go ahead. No, Tom, you know, you know, it's, uh, you put your, you put, you put the stuff in there. The hidden history of big brother in America, how the death of privacy and the rise of surveillance threaten us and our democracy. Folks get don't only, I'm going to tell you, don't only get that book, get the whole damn series because if progressives are going to do the work that's necessary to recover all that went wrong in this country, we need these different, we, we need pathways. And, you know, I used your, I, I love your book, the one that you did on healthcare. Mm-hmm. I use, I, I mentioned that book and I, I promote that book all of the times uh, because I think it, it is a very, very important read. This one is a very important read though. I have only scanned it. I have to be honest about it. But uh, again, a very important read. Tom Hartman, thank you so, well, you know what? Thank you so kindly for the book. Thank you for kindly for appearing once again on Politics Done Right. And I cannot wait for the next one.
7: And thank you so much for having me, Egberto. It's always a pleasure talking with you. I always enjoy our conversations. Thank you so much.
0: You can listen I E S, But don't you forget, listen to us live on air at KPFT 90.1 FM on Thursdays at noon and at Fridays at 11 a.m. all central time. Please get one of my several books out there. As I see it, class warfare, the only resort to right-wing doom for a contribution of $120. It's worth it, how to talk to your right-wing relatives, friends, and neighbors for a contribution of $120. How to make America Utopia take away the economy from those who rigged it for a pledge of $120. Get any two of those books for $200, any three of those books for $250. The Contributions for my books go directly to support our station, KPFT 90.1 FM. Alternatively, folks, please get your basic KPFT only membership for $40, a Pacifica only membership for $25, or choose from one of our many other gifts for your contribution. Just go to KPFT.org, choose politics done right for the program, and select an option either for our books or something else to support the station. It is definitely worth it. Please remember to keep your community radio station in your minds. Keep KPFT on your mind. Talk about it. Tell your friends about it. Tell them you know about this station in town, 90.1 FM Houston, that needs your support. That is there to provide that nourishment that we need. KPFT 90.1 FM Houston. Well folks, that's it for today. You know how I'm going to end this baby. My name is Egberto Willis. This is Politics Done Right and you know how I end this baby. I am what? Out! we mm-hmm.